the Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. So we are in for a treat today, ladies and gentlemen, because uh, I am here with uh, two of emergency medicine's finest, uh, Lance Ray and Kyle DeWitt, and uh, we are talking um, the whole episode is going to be about the management of arrhythmias in the emergency department, and this all stemmed from um, they have a two-part uh, article series in AJHP that goes into uh, m- even more detail than we can talk about on the episode. They go through and talk about how they couldn't even include everything that they wanted to. Uh, definitely zip drive worthy. We get into so much stuff, right? We talk about the different types of uh, ventricular atrial arrhythmias, bradyarrhythmias. We talk about nuances in treatment, uh, considerations, all those types of things. It is a fantastic episode. So hope everyone's excited. And uh, last thing, some of these have kind of started trickling out where there's going to be a big awards update here in about two weeks. So uh, the Pharmacy to Dose 2023 award, right the first annual you all did amazing with voting and things uh there's gonna be a whole show talking about the winners and highlighting that it is coming very soon so stay tuned folks um reach out let me know what you think about all the new initiatives and things we got some fun fun things there's gonna be some uh, a big announcement coming soon so lots of things on the horizon very very excited appreciate all the the love and listening you all give without further ado Let's get into it where I'm talking with Kyle and Lance about the ED management of arrhythmias starting right now. And with me now, two emergency medicine pharmacists here to highlight their amazing two-part article series. That's correct. Lance Ray and Kyle DeWitt. So Lance is the emergency medicine pharmacist at Denver Health and RPD of their PGY2 emergency medicine pharmacy residency program. He is uh, on Twitter at LRayRx, and Kyle is an emergency medicine pharmacist at the University of Vermont and also RPD of the PGY2 Emergency Medicine Pharmacy Residency Program at UVM. You can find him on Twitter at EmergePharm. Kyle, Lance, how are you guys doing? Great. Thanks for having us, Nick. Yeah, good, man. Happy to be here. So... We're, we're talking today in part to kind of dive in and highlight this amazing two-part article series that you two, and we, we have to shout out the third author, uh, Curtis Geyer, uh, published in AJHP, The Pathophysiology and Treatment of Adults with Arrhythmias in the Emergency Department, Parts 1 and 2. So uh, as you're listening along, everyone be sure to download that. Now, before we like dive into that paper, I have to ask, right, we're talking to kind of people in two of the more famous ski slopes in America. So I think we got to start with a little icy question because I'm curious in your all's opinion, who has the best slopes, Vermont or Denver? So 
Kyle, let's start with you. Lance, we'll follow up with you. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things I love about Vermont, but uh, skiing, snowboarding here is not one of them. So I don't, I don't think this is even a close competition. I'm going to have to go with that, uh, the fresh powder, the, the West Coast. It's too icy for me here. My answer may be the fact that I, I haven't yet been to Vermont to ski. Um, I, I keep promising Kyle, like, I got to come out there. Uh, you know, I've got like an icon pass sometimes. I, I got to come out there and visit and ski, but I haven't. So I can't honestly say which, which is better. I'll leave it at that. I was expecting a, a spicier answer from Kyle. I guess if we were, <laughs> Kyle, if we were visiting Vermont, is it is it fall or winter is the best time to do it? I mean, it's, it, I guess it depends what vibe you're going for. If you're, you're really trying to get, um, you know, the rom-com Vermont fall vibe, then fall is definitely the, the time to come and get the leap peeping season in. Um, you know, if, if you're trying to hit the slopes, then um, come during our like six to eight months of winter. I was going to say I was just all in on the flannel, but you tossed in the rom-com. So I feel like now I got to come visit in the winter. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, it's a hallmark scene. Um, yeah. So um, the real reason that we're, we're all here today, um, I want to kind of ask with like, what led you all to like researching and writing this paper? Because as everyone has hopefully taken a peek at it, like what a massive undertaking like this, like, did you even realize the the burden of work you uncovered when you were like, yeah, let's kind of start this? You know, I had an I had an idea like this is, you know, this is going to be a, a, an undertaking. And it, and it was. But I love arrhythmias. And I think I think Kyle's with me on this. We, we could have kept going. The hardest part of the paper was trimming it down to four thousand words per part, you know. And and we could have, you know, we could have kept going. And then that was that was the toughest part. But I love arrhythmias. Uh, I love arrhythmias now. I did not love arrhythmias when I came out of school. And I think I speak for most here, you know, uh, your head spinning and you're learning all these antiarrhythmics and it's kind of taught in a bit of a vacuum or a combination with heart failure and, and uh, uh, hypertension and, and some of the drugs you use for both. Right. And, and so it's confusing. Um, but it's a great example, I think of, of, you know, especially if you're a, a, a young pharmacist and, and taking some, uh, doing some precepting, you know, it's that whole thing of, you know, to teach is to learn the second time, you know, to teach is to learn again. And, and it's a great, a great thing to try to teach because it makes you, uh, you know, you can really get down a granular um, level and, and do more than just memorize. Um, and, but arrhythmias really require the kind of, I say the heart's kind of a few different layers. You got the coronary vessels, you got the, the muscle and the valves and then the nerves. And so there's several layers. Also, and, and it requires some anatomical um, awareness, and, and that's something we certainly don't get a, a heavy dose of in pharmacy school. Um, so I, I love arrhythmias. I love teaching them. I love talking about them. I, I geek out on EKGs. And then a uh, quick story. I was, it was like 2018 or 19. I was given just one of those five-minute pearls at, at ASHP midyear, and I was doing it on, uh, doing it on ibutilide use in the ED. You know, it's not a very common drug, but I was talking about it. And then the, the only question at the end of the session from the audience member, it was Kyle out there. And I didn't know Kyle at the time. And he's like, when would you use procainamide? Uh, Vis-a-vis the, uh, um, anyway, whatever. Kyle had a great question at the end of it. 
And, uh, and so then I met Kyle and, and learned that he liked, he liked talking about arrhythmias too. And, uh, and so there we were. And then, and then Kurt out on the West coast, you know, and I, Kurt and I had done a, a, a small arrhythmia talk before. So anyway, I knew these guys were interested. One of the, some of the few that were interested in arrhythmias. And so I connected with them and, and asked them if they wanted to, to do this paper. Yeah. I'll, you know, I agree with, with everything Lance just said. I, I think for me, Coming out of pharmacy school, um, you know, most of the focus on education is towards the chronic management of it um, and to no fault uh, of the curriculum because that's, that's certainly a huge area of management. But as I started getting into my, you know, ED residency and, and just out of residency, a lot of the, the EKG terminology and just interpreting it uh, was, was pretty foreign to me. And so it was something that I wanted to, to feel a lot more comfortable with. And as I, it's one of those subjects that you can just start going down the rabbit hole. Um, and uh, the more I did it, the the more interesting it became and the more comfortable I got with it. So I think this is certainly an area that, that EM pharmacists can impact practice at the bedside. So this, the, the other thing that stood out to me, so we do live in the era of spell check. Um, let's say we were writing this, you all were writing this paper mm, 30 years ago before spell check. What are we setting the over-under on on how many times you would have misspelled or had to look up the word arrhythmia? Would it have been like 100? Like it's 99 and a half is the over What do you guys What do you guys think? Do you think it would have been more or less than 100? Because I have to I have to spell check it every single time. I use spell check for everything that involves E and I next to each other, man. I'm, I'm with you. But, uh, you know, arrhythmia is something. Wait, yeah, wait, 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 wait. Never... There's, there's no E in arrhythmia, though. <laughs> yes. Right. No, I'm telling you how bad of a speller I am. So I, I, use, I, use, I, use, I use spell check a lot. But uh, for arrhythmia, I, I got it down at some point, but it, it took a while. And thankfully, I, I kind of got it down before we were, we were at this paper. But, um, but yeah, I hear you. So I want to highlight um, figure one. Um, and we'll kind of start with with the part one article that's focusing on atrial arrhythmias. And the the figure one, I think it's in part two as well, is awesome because it's a schematic to help categorize arrhythmias. So A, it's a great visual for our visual learners, right, to see where arrhythmias are happening in the heart. And B, kind of use this as a general outline for our discussion. So as we're starting out, right, we'll hit atrial arrhythmias. Now, one of the most common atrial arrhythmias, right? The the two most, I guess you say, atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter. So, Kyle, is there a time where we ever really treat those disease states differently, or is it more kind of a diagnosis difference? Yeah, so I think there are when you get into the the electrophysiology and, and the pathology of these, there are some subtle differences, mainly that. With AFib, you know, you have a lot of multiple irritable foci throughout the atrial tissue um, that's bombarding the, the AV node, whereas with a flutter, it's really just one single reentrant uh, loop there. And that being said, uh, for the most part, the acute management is very, very similar. Um, there are some differences in, in how each of these arrhythmias is going to respond to rate control or rhythm control. We can get into that in a little bit, but... Um, for the most part, you can kind of think of AFib, A-flutter, at least in acute management, um, very, very similar. 
I'll point out real quick that Kyle used the word re-entry, and that always gave me PTSD to use that term. And 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 it's you know he's absolutely correct. But it made me think. of one thing we tried not to do in the article was put any action, any pictures of action potentials in the article because that gives people anxiety too. Um, uh, learners are, are are often confused, like an action potential. You're like, well, is this like an EKG? No, it's, you know, but it's sort of similar looking and stuff. But anyway, um, we we try to kind of not 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 get on that level, and I think that's why the the schematic was. Um, was was hopefully is hopefully useful. I I think it is useful and and a unique approach to it, right? I think if if people want to see the um you know the polarization, you're, it's going to be very easy to find, but it's not as easy to find something like this. Um, so I love it. Now, when we're talking about our two primary treatment options, beta blockers, right? I think in beta when we're talking about these, right? When I'm saying beta blockers, it's, we're commonly referring to metoprolol and the non-DHP calcium channel blockers, most commonly diltiazem. So what are, before we get into the nuances, what are the guideline recommended dosing of these agents when patients come in to the ED with in AFib with RVR? Yeah, so when you look at deltiazem specifically and, and you pull up the package insert or any uh, drug reference, you're going to see commonly a weight-based dosage utilized. Um, that being said, there is a lot of different approaches when you look at the literature and, and common practices out there. And a lot of people will go with, with a fixed dose of, you know, 10 to 15 milligrams versus a, a weight-based dose of your 0.25 mg per kg for that initial dose. I think I'm all about individualizing therapy. Um, so it really depends on the patient in front of you at the time. But what I've seen, at least in my practice, is that patients who are presenting with kind of that borderline soft blood pressure, um, we might err on the side of, of giving maybe a smaller fixed dose uh, just so that we're not kind of tanking their, their pressures. Um, but most of the data has, has really shown similar outcomes regardless of what you use. Again, it should be individualized to that, that patient in front of you. So what about how do we, how do we, dose, uh, how do we acutely dose IV metoprolol in, in this setting? Yeah, this is uh, this is one of my pet peeves. So uh, commonly, what you'll see is is a dose of five milligrams every five minutes, uh, repeated, you know, up to, to three times. Yep. And what happens, as you know, um, everyone in the, the ED has very short attention spans. So we give our, our first dose, and then they circle back about an hour later. And they're like, well, their heart rate didn't change at all. Uh, let's try a second <laughs> dose and, you know, circle back 30, 60 minutes later. And, and now we're uh, calling cards to admit the patient. So um, with both of these things, I think the key is, is early reassessment and um, making sure that we're, you know, following up 15 minutes, 30 minutes and, and repeating that dose if, if necessary, specifically with metoprolol five minutes later. Um, but there are also weight based dosing for, for metoprolol that you find out there. But I think the most common that I've seen is that five, five, five approach. And you mentioned, right, we're trying to do patient centered kind of treatments. And I think that's the movement across medicine in a great way. So when these same patients are coming in, what are, like you mentioned, 
um, like vital sign or things that that will influence our doses. Are there any disease state considerations with these agents where we might use one compared to another or we might modify our dose or something based on that past medical history we find? Yeah, so those that don't work in the ED may not know this, but diltiazem is typically the, the choice that ED physicians go with. Yep. Uh, metoprolol is typically the, the 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 choice that cardiologists go with, and, and I think I think it's for the these reasons that there's there's enough evidence out there that DILT probably works a little quicker and maybe a little more durable uh, of an action, and and that's why ED physicians like it. However, what's the patient going to go home on, or what do they what should they go home on? And that's, that's where you get into like, well, compelling indications. And we all know beta blockers are better for cardiac disease, coronary artery disease. And most patients that have ACIB also have, you know, coronary artery disease or, or heart failure or something. So that's usually why those decisions um, are, are made respectively. But it, I have, I got a pet peeve too. And it's, and it's something we, we tried to hone in on the article, albeit briefly. Um, so we're, we're traditionally taught that don't give beta blockers in reactive airway disease yep. and don't give DILT in heart failure. Yep. Now, does this matter in with cardioselective beta blockers that are supposed to just work on beta one? Probably not. Probably fine to give beta blocker in reactive airway disease, but sure, we can avoid it, avoid it. And then, um, you know, don't give diltiazem a, a non-DHP calcium channel blocker in heart failure. And this is the, this is the thing that I like to talk about. Um, you can give diltiazem and heart failure. Yes, it's a negative inotrope, but it's no more or less negatively inotropic than beta blockers are, right? Why would why should you not give beta blockers in, in acute decompensated heart failure? And so, um, but we know that beta blockers are beneficial long term for heart failure, and so that that's really why we should probably give a beta blocker, follow with a beta blocker, and and have them on outpatient beta blocker therapy. But we made it a point to cover this briefly in the review, uh, and it's like citation number forty-three. We may drop it in the show notes to give you a give you a, give you uh, listeners a, a teaser here. We definitely. Um, but but we we avoid why we avoid DILT and Vrabamil and heart failures based off this one. It's based off largely based off a study from nineteen ninety-one where they took post MI patients and they gave DILT to them and followed them up two or three years and the DILT patients did worse than the placebo patients. But these were not even AFib patients. I don't even have to get into the, the you know, population and the, or the, um, I don't have to get into the numbers and p-values and all that. Like they weren't even AFib patients. Um, and the current, by the way, the, the definitions of MI back then were not STEMI. They were like Q-wave uh, MI and non-Q-wave MI. So lots of things. Um, and, and so DILT kind of got a bad rap, you know, for, for use in acute scenarios, I, I, I suppose, but it wasn't even in ATIP patients. And, uh, and, and actually, so the citation we were, we're going to drop is this really great review article on like, there's a lot of emerging evidence of, on, on using DILT in heart failure, and it's not as bad as we thought, even long term. So, um, it, you know, you can use DILT in acute scenarios. Uh, just like you can, you know, if the patient has a history, also histories, you know, follow the patient. They may have a history of heart failure. They might not be in acute decompensated heart failure. And if they're in acute decompensated heart failure, you probably wouldn't want to use a long-term beta, you know, a long-acting beta blocker either. You know, you want to be careful. 
I love highlighting, like finding studies like this to to try to kind of debunk or confirm evidence, right? And that's certainly, that'll certainly be highlighted. Published in 1991. So this is an oldie but a goodie out there for sure. Um, so I like that it feels like you all have some feelings. Let's talk about another kind of, I guess you'd say like ED mantra and, and let's chat about it. So if a patient takes an agent at home, let's say they take a beta blocker at home, Right. What is your management strategy? Because on one hand, you know, the argument is, oh, they take it at home. We should give them a little bit more of the agent that works the same. Uh, maybe they missed a dose, et cetera. Or the other side, right, would be, well, should we add an agent that works differently? Should we give them diltiazem because maybe the, the metoprolol isn't working? So what is, is there, let me know what your all's opinion is, but is there any, is there any data to truly say that one is better than another, or is it really all anecdotal physiology based kind of discussions? So I think it's probably most, mostly the latter. Um, I will say historically, and again, this is going to be provider preference. This is going to be based on institutional culture. Um, I do think there is a trend where if a provider sees a, a beta blocker on that, that home medication list, um, the patient is probably more likely to get a beta blocker initially. Um, that being said, we, at least personally, we tend to be a, a pretty guilt heavy shop. Um, and so regardless of what they're on at home, most of our providers are, are likely going to choose to guilt first. Um, there is a kind of a cool paper that came out out of, um, couple pharmacists from Boston, and um, they essentially looked at if a patient initially gets a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker, and then they don't meet their goal heart rate, is there any harm for trying an agent from that different class? So, you know, switching from beta blocker to calcium channel blocker. And I think historically, this was something that a lot of people were a little afraid of because the fear is, oh, if you use both agents, you're going to totally shut down the AV node and put these patients into the heart block. Um, but this group, at least from their study, found that, you know, 40% of the time-ish, um, they were able to achieve a, a goal heart rate with using that alternative class. And they found that rates of bradycardia and hypotension were, were very, very low. So I think this seems like a safe approach if you need to, to switch. But again, it's, it's really going to be institution and, and provider dependent on, on how they're feeling about, you know, what agent they want to choose and what they're most comfortable with. Yeah. That was um, Brian Hayes in, in groups, right? Right, Kyle. Yep. Yep. And, and it was, sorry, whoever does an article with, with Brian Hayes, he, Brian Hayes was probably like the fourth author, but, but you're always <laughs> known as the at all. If you do a study with Brian Hayes, anyway, yeah, I think there was their their, their crew out in in Boston, but yeah, that's that's a great little uh, that was a great little um, article on on combining the two and, and how many adverse events happen. So, taking drug shortages aside, which is something right that we're all managing hour by hour, sometimes it feels like. Um, are there patient specific or disease specific times where we should be using esmolol or verapamil kind of the other um, beta blocker or non DHP calcium channel blockers? Yeah. You know, great question. As you mentioned, you know, Metope is our go-to IV beta blocker and DIL is our IV or virtually only, you know, IV calcium channel blocker, but those are the esmolol and verapamil are, are two others. So, 
as I mentioned earlier, like there's those times where you want to be really careful with an acute decompensated heart failure patient in AFib. Those are the times I reach for Esmolol because it's so short acting and you can sort of titrate it and, and get it on. And once you, the patient's decompensating further because of the negative inotropy, you can't, or negative chronotropy, you can, uh, you can slow it down, turn it off, and it's gone in just a couple minutes. So I think Esmolol has its, has its niche, uh, niche there. Um, Verapamil, it's funny, uh, when we were on a delt shortage a few years ago, I went up, went down to our central pharmacy and found like 200 vials of verapamil. <laughs> but it'd be really hard to get anybody to switch over, A, because nobody has experience with verapamil. And we're creatures of habit. And so almost you know, only the more senior attendings in the ED will ever have had any experience with verapamil. And they'll tell you anecdotally, and there's some evidence out there that supports a little bit more hypotension with verapamil, um, but it's available. Um, you know, it's out there. So we've been talking a lot about the agents and we've talked about right effectiveness and things. So when, what is our ultimately like our heart rate goal for those patients in the emergency department? What, what are we shooting for when we're talking about efficacy in these agents? Yeah. In, in general, it's, it's going to be targeting a heart rate of less than 100 to 110 beats per minute. And this is going to depend on which specific guideline you're, you're reading. So there are some differences between the AHA, the European guidelines, the Canadian guidelines, et cetera. Um, but most patients, we're going to try to get to around that, that 100 to, to 110 mark. Um, the caveat to this is, is there are going to be some patients that are still symptomatic despite slowing them down to around 100. And those are patients that we might need to, to target, you know, slightly lower rates around 80. Um, however, when you look at all the, the comparative data, um, and, you know, a lot of this is done outside the ED setting, so you got to take it with a grain of salt. But um, in general, they haven't found any, any difference in terms of, uh, you know, cardiovascular death, stroke, heart failure, hospitalization. Uh, stuff like that when you kind of compare the um, strict targets versus more of the lenient targets. So again, I, I, it's something that needs to be individualized to the patient in front of you, but those are the the general numbers we target. So knowing how these agents work so far, we've obviously been focusing on on rate control up to this point and kind of switching gears in terms of our mechanisms of action. When is antiarrhythmic treatment safe in the emergency department? And is there is there an agent that has the best evidence for use? Like if we're going to use an antiarrhythmic, we're going to use this, or is it a little more complicated than that? Yeah, thanks, Nick, for asking about like the true antiarrhythmic drugs, because really the TOPE, the beta blockers and non-DHP calcium channel blockers aren't truly antiarrhythmics. They're rate control agents. And with some landmark studies in the 2000s, we learned that rate control is probably as good as rhythm control. We don't have to be aggressive actually converting the rhythm to sinus rhythm. So we tend to not do that a lot. We tend to not use our, our true antiarrhythmic drugs a lot. But there are, are some times that you would. Sometimes it's, it's a um, kind of younger, healthier, not a lot of comorbidities. They're in AFib for, you know, and, and is provoked for, for an, kind of a known reason. And, and we want to get them out of AFib. We don't want them to be an AFib from age 30 for the rest of their life and just, just rate control. And that's, that's certainly not a good thing. So 
the AFib guidelines, like the last AHA AFib guidelines were in 2014. That's why Kyle and I cited, and we like to cite the, the Canadian guidelines because they're not, oh, they're a lot newer, um, 2020, I believe, and, and, and Kyle's super close to Canada. Like we, Kyle's super close to Canada. I'm a lot closer than some people. But anyway, the, um, the, the, the AFib guidelines from AHA, even though back from 2014, they're pretty, I think they, they still stand for the most part today. And they recommend flecainide, dilfetilide, propafenone, or IV butylide as being useful for cardioversion and AFib or atrial flutter. This is a class one recommendation. Well, where's the amiodarone? Well, amiodarone is a class two recommendation. They just kind of do a, they kind of poo-poo, well, amiodarone is reasonable for pharmacological conversion. Well, that's probably, I don't, you know, we don't use a lot of flecainide and dofetilide, but that's where the guidelines, that's where the evidence is. Those are a lot of evidence to show that those are very good, very effective drugs for um, uh, arrhythmias and for specifically atrial arrhythmias like AFib. And there is enough data to show that amiodarone is much slower, like six hours slower in converting AFib compared to these agents, ibutilide, flecainide, uh, and dofetilide. So there's some evidence to support why they, why they say that as a class two um, recommendation. Um, fun fact, Europe uses a lot more flecainide and propafenone and ibutilide probably than, um, than the U.S. And it's been, uh, that's been shown in some studies that are based in Europe. Um, so, uh, lastly, I want to throw something out about sodalol, right? We know sodalol is an antiarrhythmic too. By the way, amiodarone, I call it a broad spectrum antiarrhythmic. And that's probably why we're comfortable using it because we know we can kind of use it for any arrhythmia ventricular or atrial and it's got some evidence behind it and it's you know it, it eventually sodalol is one more right and we kind of just put a one-liner in our paper about sodalol and, and part of that was because we just didn't have the room to include a lot of stuff but sodalol is also a great drug i know lots of cardiologists uh, uh, that, that say sodalol is better than amiodarone and, and it's probably been shown that in in, in certain populations too um, but it's very expensive. IV sodalol is like, it, it's expensive. And uh, it's probably expensive because there's some new literature and they got a new FDA labeling for using IV sodalol as, uh, uh, as for a one-day initiation therapy, right? Because sodalol and dofetilide are these, these drugs that you have to hospitalize somebody for three days to, to sort of start, start them and monitor them. Um, but they, they, there's some evidence that shows that sodalol IV can get to steady state in like one day and you can avoid two days hospitalization. That's big money. So that's kind of my piece on, on the antiarrhythmic drugs. Um, there's a lot of useful drugs out there. We tend to use amiodarone, uh, but it is probably, it is slower acting than, than a lot of the others. Broad spectrum. That's a, that's a fantastic nickname. Um, and I also think in the ED, we like immediate gratification, like Kyle said, short attention span. So the idea that you, you're going to start a drug and the plan will be they get admitted for three days and things, right? You like it where we convert them in front of us, right? We like the immediate gratification. We want to help them in the moment probably. Um, now, the other thing, right? I'm one of those critical care pharmacists working in the ED at the moment, right? And so the other thing that we haven't mentioned is procainamide. So, um, Lance had kind of been focusing on like talking about, we probably use amiodarone. There's other recommendations, but Kyle, when, 
is there a time that should we be using procainamide ahead of amiodarone too? Like, where does that stand? If it was up to me, I would take amiodarone and just dump it all in some closet somewhere. Um, <laughs> again, I I don't work outpatient. I I 100% uh, would support you know its use in kind of the long term maintenance therapy, but for anything acute, it is just way too slow. Um, I, I don't know if it's because I live, you know, up north close to the border, like Lance, Lance mentioned, and we're closer to this, the, all the data coming out of Ottawa. Um, but procainamide, I think, is a, a really nice option for some of these patients coming in with AFib. Um, specifically, you know, um, keeping in mind those who are presenting uh, within 48 hours, and, and we can get into the, the nuances of, of these time frames, but um, for uh, cardioversion in the ED. And so, um, you know, there's the classic data, is the Ottawa protocol, where essentially they infuse a gram of procainamide over 60 minutes. And about, you know, 50 to 60% of folks with AFib um, are going to achieve cardioversion back to a normal sinus rhythm. The rates with a flutter are definitely not as great. So those tend to be a, a little uh, lower, closer to the 30 40% range. Um, and then the newer RAF2 trial actually used kind of a higher, more aggressive dosing. So they were doing a weight-based dose of 15 mates per keg up to a max of uh, 1,500 milligrams. And they give it a little quicker over over 30 minutes instead of 60. And again, they found similar rates right around 50 to 60% of, of cardioversion. I think the one challenge of procainamide is it's not something that we stock in our, our ED Pixis machine. So it is going to take some time to get it, you know, if, if you do have to get it from the central pharmacy. Um, so, you know, keep that in mind uh, in terms of, you know, logistical aspects and stuff. But I think it, it is a really appealing drug. Um, and I'm curious to see how, when our AHA guidelines get updated, where this falls in that algorithm for acute arrhythmia uh, management. So when we're talking about our antirhythmic medications, one of the things that, especially as a learner, you'll see this and you'll be like, so the drugs we're using to treat these arrhythmias can also be pro-arrhythmic, right? So we're treating arrhythmias, but we can cause more arrhythmias. So Lance, can you kind of go in a little bit of like the mechanism behind that, like how that happens, like, and, and considerations for us, I guess? Yeah, I love that you. I love that you mentioned that. I mention that to learners sometimes, and then we'll both kind of be like, "Oh, head explodes!" Right? <laughs> How can that be? And and I think the best example is when you're a pharmacist working anywhere. You can be in the retail setting. You can be in, on the floor. You can be in central pharmacy, and you get a warning that pops up that says, "Should you be worried about QT prolongation in this patient who has Zofran and levofloxacin?" And I say, no, we don't really need to worry about that. Unless the patient has a congenital long QT, and that's, that's, um, that, that, that's a problem. That's very rare. But I, what I'm getting at is that antiarrhythmics do prolong the QT. Lots of them do, not all of them. But lots of antiarrhythmics prolong the QT. And they prolong them very, way more than Zofran, than Citalopram, than Levofloxacin. Um, and, and why? Because they're built to do that. And that's what they, that's what we designed them for. And, and, and what do I mean? Well, things like 
sodalol, dofetilide, amiodarone. They are class three antiarrhythmics. They work a lot on potassium channels on phase three action potential of the action potential. And what we do when we block that part of the action potential is we prolong the QT. And that's what we're, that's what we're trying to do to prolong the refractory phase to try to fix some of those reentry circuits. So, so it's sort of what they're designed to do. And so by virtue of prolonging that phase, and, and if you, uh, change the slope of phase zero with some of the sodium channel blockers, you end up pushing out the QT. So a lot of them prolong QT. And we all know that prolongation of QT can put someone at risk for torsade. So, so that's where that link comes in. Um, and, 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 and by the way, and so if you do, if you are working anywhere and get a, uh, alert that pops up that says, this patient's on Zofran and Levofloxacin. No, I don't care. Sorry, everyone has their own practice. I'm not telling you how to practice. But where I teach that it really matters is when Sotolol comes up with the uh, Ondansetron or Sotolol comes up with the Citalopram or Levofloxacin because Sotolol is built to prolong QT. So those are the interactions that we should really pay attention to. What a great explanation. I, yeah, way to, way to clarify that. I love that. Um, now for, for the, the listeners who are in the ICU, a lot of times for acute AFib RVR management, maybe they're a little hemodynamically unstable. We'll see a lot of DIG, a lot of digoxin as part of the treatment regimen routinely. Now, uh, is this something that's a common treatment of AFib with RVR in the emergency department? No, not for me at least. Uh, I always laugh because we we still stock this in our code carts throughout the hospital, um, and I have not once in my career responded to a rapid response or a code where we emergently need IV digoxin. Uh, but fun fact, it, it is the only AV nodal blocker that uh, is not going to suppress the um, inotropy, and so it will cause positive inotropy, and so. That being said, it, it can be potentially, you know, considered in, in those who are acutely decompensated or um, particularly have a, a poor ejection fraction or maybe some pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, but again, going back to the pharmacokinetics, it's, it's very, very slow onset. We're talking at least an hour or so, and then it doesn't hit peak till around six hours. So for us in the ED, it's just not, not the most optimal agent. Yeah, we don't use it a whole lot either. Um, I know some, some places, my resident who was at Mass General last year said that they, they utilize it quite a bit. So anyone out there at Mass General, maybe on the East Coast, uh, maybe it, uh, provider preference, patient population. Uh, but I know some, some places still use it. But yeah, when we will pull it out, as Kyle said, is, is in those maybe acute decompensated heart failure patients where we do need a little extra squeeze, the inotropy, and uh, we're also trying to rate control. Listeners, reach out. If y'all are using Dig, let us know. Let us know what your yeah. practice is. Um, so we've we've talked about um, more of stable management, right? Um, but what happens when patients come in and they're hemodynamically unstable, where you know our blood pressure is low? Um, what are what are considerations? Um, that we have and the differences in the stable versus unstable management. Yeah, so that's the first thing we, we try to hone in on when a patient comes in with an, an arrhythmia or maybe a patient comes in hypotensive and you find that they're in an arrhythmia. 
certainly this is where we want to cardiovert patients. They're, they're unstable. If their blood pressure is low, if their mental status is, is waning, uh, want to cardiovert them. So now you have cardioversion in front of you. Well, cardioversion can be chemical with, with pharmacological cardioversion, or it can be electrical. Certainly in ventricular arrhythmias that are unstable, we want to, we want to electrically cardiovert those right away. And we always say, yes, the pharmacist is, is a lot of times there to help work through sedation and all that, but we, we don't need to take time to pull up sedation. We, we need to just go ahead and cardiovert. It's okay. Um, if you have the time, sure. Um, um, we can, we can do the sedation things. Um, and, and so, but then in the uh, atrial arrhythmias that are unstable, you, you may have a little more time and you may can, can use these chemical, you know, pharmacological cardioversions like procainamide or, or ibutilide. Um, sometimes those, those, especially procainamide can cause some hypotension. So you want to think about that. But, um, but generally, you know, I, I'd say most of the time we'll, we'll reach for electrical cardioversion. Then we talked briefly in the article we, we, uh, about, about cardioversion because it's typically not something that, that we're taught uh, in our pharmacy curriculum. And, and the big things to, I think, know there are like, well, there's synchronized and unsynchronized cardioversion. Well, what is that? Well, synchronized cardioversion, the, the machines are amazing to me. They detect right when an R wave is starting. We're like, well, it's an arrhythmia. These are irregular arrhythmias. How does it sync up with the R wave that's happening? Well, the computer does it really quick, and it sees that upstroke of an R wave, and it delivers electricity right then. That's when we want to deliver a shock to the myocardium. Why do we not want to do just <clears throat> random um, uh, cardioversion, which is unsynchronized, which is also termed defibrillation, because we might be shocking at that vulnerable point of the heart where where it's you know kind of between its R wave and its in its T wave, or between the Q and the in the T wave. Yes, and it's not unlike why torsades happens in long QT. And so we don't want to shock in this vulnerable area of the heart. When you do that, you can degenerate a rhythm further. Well, what's worse than AFib? Well, VTAC, VFib. There's not anything worse than VFib. And so we can always just blindly defibrillate um, with VFib. And, and it, you know, it's just something, it's more advanced. It's something to, you know, learn later on after you get your antiarrhythmics, you know, kind of down. But there has been some times I've been in the room and we're like, you know, the, the tech's fooling around with the uh, defibrillator, the, the cardioverter, and, you know, I see that they're maybe teaching or talking to someone while they're, while they're doing it and don't, don't have it quite on the right setting. Sometimes we can, I think I did that once. It was like, it felt like I really saved the day there. But yeah, so cardioversion, you know, synchronized or unsynchronized, there's differences. We, we covered a little bit in the paper. It's something to be aware of. I feel like that's the ultimate flex, by the way, when the pharmacist is doing the non-drug things. Like, you're helping with the defib. You're helping set something up, right, that others should know. I always feel like that's the... Oh, yeah. You're not secretly flexing, but you're, you kind of are, like, in your mind. You're like, I got it. I got oh, totally. It. And I was also doing chest compressions with one hand, too. It was a total Chuck Norris moment. So the warm blanket and the other one. Yeah. <laughs> his his right arm turns into a Lucas, basically, and his other as he's doing it. <laughs> um, so you, what are things you kind of hit on this a little bit, but what are, what are considerations for the pharmacist, whether, and maybe it's not necessarily just the Zoll, but maybe it's like medication treatments or what are things for us to keep in mind when this unstable patient comes in and we're, and we're, we either know, or you hear people talking about cardioversion, where does your mind start going? 
which I started maybe thinking about what, if we have time, what we can do for sedation. We don't always have uh, the luxury of that time, but always thinking about sedation is good. Uh, Atomidate is, is a very common thing um, that we that we use for uh, for sedation here because it's so hemodynamically you know, neutral. We uh, I also start thinking of like what other drugs should I be reaching for? What 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 are we saying this arrhythmia is? Um, because there's some evidence that you know giving a giving a drug like procainamide can enhance the success of, of electrical cardioversion. So kind of thinking about, well, if this fails, can we give a drug and then maybe, maybe that will work, the drug will work, or the drug will help the next cardioversion uh, in a few minutes. So those are a couple of things that I think about. So the one last thing as we're kind of on the topic of cardioversion is anticoagulation. And specifically, is there any role for anticoagulation initiation, continuation, what have you in the ED in this setting? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that we definitely wanted to touch on in the article. And it's hard not to, again, go down the rabbit hole. And, um, you know, you could write an entire paper on this. But I think this is certainly an area of practice that's continuing to evolve. And that's reflected in, in the updated Canadian and European guidelines where, you know, historically, we'd think about the so-called 48-hour rule. And so um, this goes back to studies from the 80s, 90s, uh, early 2000s, where if a patient presents to the ED and they've been in their atrial arrhythmia for longer than 48 hours, that's associated with a stroke risk somewhere along the lines of like 2 to 2.5%. And somewhere on the, down the road, uh, this became that number that was deemed unacceptably high to cardiovert the patient then and there. And so um, I think what a lot of pharmacy students and residents are familiar with is, you know, if they present after or beyond being in that arrhythmia for longer than 48 hours, uh, we have to cardiovert or excuse me, um, anticoagulate them for three weeks or do a, a fancy TTE to look at the heart and see if there's a clot in there before we can proceed with cardioversion and then they need couple weeks of, of anticoagulation afterwards. Um, and so I guess the question comes down to, is, you know, what's the acceptable level of risk for a, a stroke? And there's some newer data that's, again, really trying to individualize uh, each patient's risk. And what we're finding is, um, you know, that risk might actually be a little bit higher in that 12 to 24 or 24 to 48 hours than we previously thought. And so these newer Canadian and European guidelines are really breaking down that, that time frame into 0 to 12 hours, 12 to 24, 12 to 48, et cetera, um, which I really like. And so um, this was an area that, you know, we tried to touch on. Um, and I think what, what's happening now is we're seeing recommendations for initiation of, of anticoagulation in the ED, preferably before they get cardioverted. Um, and so it's certainly an area that I think as an ED pharmacist or ED practitioner, um, you should at least be familiar with. And, you know, I was just reading over the weekend, there was a, a newer paper that I saw that was published in circulation. So giving you some hot off the press articles here, but um, they were actually looking at developing a, a validated, uh, what they called a DOAC score. Um, specifically, this is something for, Rivaroxaban, Apixaban, uh, Dabigatran, 
that's uh, kind of comparable to the HasLed score, which there's a lot of elements within HasLed that don't apply to the DOAX. And so we talk about label INRs as one of the, the criteria in the HasLed score. And so, you know, bottom line, I, I think this is an area that's continuing to evolve as we get these newer anticoagulants and um, we start to see more and more data of patients coming in and getting cardioverted uh, earlier on with, with better things symptom recognition uh, thanks to Apple Watches and all the fancy technology that we have now. So SVT or supraventricular tachycardia, that's a phrase you'll hear all the time. They're an SVT, they're an SVT. But that's, that's a more generic term that refers to which specific rhythm. Yeah, we, we, we hone in on this in, in the article briefly. I probably put like 10 sentences on this and the editors were like, whoa, 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 you know, slow down. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was passionate about it. But yeah, SVT, we, we say SVT and I'll, I'll ask my learners after they've been with me for several weeks and learned way more than they want about uh, arrhythmias and cardiology. What do they really mean when they, when they you know, maybe the nurse or, or physician, we all use the term SVT. What, what does someone really mean when they mean it, when they're talking about SVT? Like the thing that... We want to use that one drug for, and and we're really talking about AV nodal reentry tachycardia, right? A, a reentry circuit that's caught up in the AV node causes a really rapid fixed heart rate, um, and and so yes, you're right. Nick, it's a it's an umbrella term um, because technically atrial fibrillation, a flutter, uh, even sinus tachycardia, these are all superventricular tachycardias, um, and so and maybe and maybe it's it's okay to say SVT because we really don't know until patient converts or, you know, we get some really advanced reading the EKG. So it's an okay term to use. I just, I just always like learners to, 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 you know, call it by its right name when, when we really are, are sure it is what it is because it highlights the, the anatomy and the physiology of what's happening, the AV nodal reentry tachycardia. Yeah, it's a, it's a great explanation because the, the more generic term I don't think is if you don't know its mechanism, it's not clear from that description, right? So I think that's a, a really good way of explaining that. Now, I feel like maybe a couple of years ago, if I asked you all this question, it might have been a little more controversial, but there's two kind of big heavyweights for the treatment of, of SVT, adenosine versus diltiazem. So uh, I'm going to make you all pick a side. What, what team are you all on? Are you team adenosine or team diltiazem? Man, I... I've never personally had the luxury of having adenosine. Um, you know, it seems like most patients who, who receive it uh, obviously don't feel great, and it's something that we should counsel them going in. Um, so I think that, you know, that's one of the advantages that deltaism poses is um, it might take a little bit longer for it to work, but sometimes you can avoid that you know, um, awful impending doom feeling that, that patients describe a lot of times. Um, so, you know, I think both are, are certainly reasonable options. Um, when you look at the, the rates of conversion back to sinus rhythm, they, they seem to be pretty close. So, um, you know, maybe depending on, on the providers again and what the patient's feeling, um, you could go with, with either. I think for the sake of debate, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with uh, adenosine, quicker acting. 
Yeah, I, I more and more we'll we'll try diltiazem because as you as you alluded to, Nick, there's there's more evidence behind this uh, using dilt or, or even a a beta blocker for this. But ah, uh, man, I you know you also said earlier, Nick, like we like to see drugs work. It's really gratifying yep. to see drugs yep. work, and adenosine is one of those one of those chances we get uh, we get in the ED. So. Probably, probably team adenosine here, but but knowing that DILT is is also a very viable option. All right, so both both a uh, team adenosine, and this is I feel like if we're power ranking the four things that EM pharmacists love, walking through the adenosine administration cycle has to be at the top of it. So walk us through like the classic scenario where an adenosine treatment is successful and be sure to talk about how, like if, if it's important, like which IV or things you give it as you're kind of talking through that. Yeah. So you want to, you want to get it, you want to give it, you want it to get to the heart quick. Um, you know, so there's all these different, um, you know, things I, I just think giving it, Giving it in the IV line, maybe they're raising the, the, the patient's hand up to, to get it, you know, into the close to the AV node quickly is uh, is good. Uh, and like Kyle mentioned, it's, it, it's like you feel like you're dying. And because you are, you know, your heart's stopping Stops, when you yeah. when you get a dentist. I always do. I give our, our brand new interns, our medical interns, a hard time. And after adenosine works, I go, great, it worked. Do you want to start an adenosine drip? <laughs> And they kind of pause for a second, have to think about it. And then, then they, you know, give me an ugly face and walk away. But, um, but, but yeah, so uh, having the patient like close their eyes is, is kind of a cool counseling thing. If, if, you know, it's a thing we can, we can have the patients do. And I think it's more, le- less uh, unpleasurable for the patient. Kyle, do you have anything? Um, no, I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, similar to making, uh, you know, pharmacy students or residents like taste different, uh, antibiotics, <laughs> if this is something we should do to, we you will... know, ED pharmacists or ED providers where everyone's got to go through like adenosine trial. We won't give them the full six. We'll just give them like one, right? Just a taste, just a smidge. Yeah. Yeah. Just a microdose. <laughs> micro That's great. Dose. Well, <laughs> that's that's hardcore. That's more hardcore than than smelling uh, acetylcysteine, hands down. <laughs> Maybe they get a choice when they when they start the rotation. But uh, and another the elephant in the room here is how to administer adenosine, yeah. right? And the the one and now and so so thankfully we have some evidence that all pharmacists can point to now on why we don't have to do a three way stopcock to administer adenosine. It's always this thing. Nurses are running around and we're calling different floors. We're trying to go to the supply room, supply closet to get three-way stopcock. And it's probably not necessary, but it's fun and it's cool and it's a gadget. And the only analogy I can think of is it's like a Rube Goldberg machine where the, 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 the foot kicks the book that topples over and hits the marble that goes down to do this. And it's, it's, it's fun and it's a, it's a thing. Um, but um, as Kyle and I both put in the, made a point to, to put in the paper uh, a few of the pieces of evidence that show that just putting in a large flushing afterwards very quickly or putting in a large 20 cc syringe and pushing it all in quickly is as good and maybe better than a three-way stopcock. And if you work with pediatrics, you may even lose some of the small adenosine dose in the three-way stopcock. 
So what are some considerations when, when using diltiazem? Um, kind of thinking about the new, the new kid on the block. Yeah, it's interesting. When you actually look at the data, most of the, the doses they used was something similar to a continuous infusion of DILT, which um, doesn't translate great to our, our practice in the ED. Um, that being said, I, I think we've essentially just extrapolated the, the normal dosing that we would do for an AFib or a flutter um, to SBT. And so my experience is, is just giving those, you know, same whether it's a weight-based dose or a fixed dose. Um, and I do think there, there might be a little utility when potentially you have kind of an underlying AFib or an A flutter underneath that SBT. Um, it tends to, you know, have that longer duration of action that will keep them, uh, slowed down at least so you can figure out maybe what's driving that, that SBT in some of those, uh, instances. But, um, yeah. So we have been talking about part one, right? The pathophysiology and treatment of adults with arrhythmias in the emergency department. So for those keeping track at home, following along, let's kind of move to part two here, talking about ventricular and bradyarrhythmias. And I want to highlight, um, it's actually, I think, the um, sentence, the second sentence in part one. But the second sentence literally says, interpretation of an EKG to diagnose arrhythmias may be intimidating. I've never agreed with authors more than that statement right there. And the article references a, a 2021 AJHP paper, Basic Surface EKG Interpretation for the PharmD. Definitely encourage everyone to read that paper, pull it. Obviously, EKGs are a visual thing. But as, you know, talking through it here, are there a couple important things that a pharmacist can keep their eyes peeled for, right? It's like a, a positive, a pharmacy positive CT scan. Are there a couple things that like, hey, we don't have to be experts, but we should probably know, you know, X, Y, or Z. Like, what are a couple of those things? Yeah, great point. And we, we, there was a great article a couple of years ago that you mentioned, and, and we wanted to highlight that. I think in both parts, you know, we say that um, at the beginning because we didn't have the time to go into EKGs. But I, I teach, and, and I imagine Kyle does the same with, with EKGs, is like starting off basic. And, 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 and sometimes that's all, that's all you need to do because you don't really know what, and the provider or whoever, the cardiologist doesn't really know what the rhythm is. All we can do is describe what we're seeing. And I, and I, and I hone in on that and we say, you know, don't get, don't get over intimidated by it. Start with, is it, is it fast or slow? And we've got, you know, tachycardia, bradycardia, because Every rhythm is either normal, normal rate or, or tacky or Brady. So you say that, and then you can say, is it irregular or, or regular? And does this look like it's a pattern or not, you know? And I know it's, it's hard not to get caught up in the irregular, irregular and all that stuff, but just, just, is it irregular or not? And then, and then finally, you know, is that QRS complex, we can identify that. Is it wide or narrow? And through that algorithm, you know, you can, you can sort of kind of come to a conclusion of, of some, some broad terms, you might just be able to see it. That's a superventricular tachycardia. You might be able to just say that's an SVT. We don't, we don't know for sure. So we can use umbrella terms. Um, and then, then secondly, it's one of those things like with anything, the more you do it, the better you get. At one of my EDs um, back in Texas, I sat next to the telemetry monitor. We had a telemetry monitor. It was a hundred bed ED and she had all hundred patients telemetry in front of her and it was it was great we would go in there I'd take students over there and we would 
really able to pick out, you know, things, you know, pretty quick or then, then go to the patient's room and, and, uh, see the EKG. So, you know, the more you do some, the, the, the easier it becomes. So uh, repetition there. Uh, and, and then, um, yeah, reading the, or, you know, finding kind of describing things in a real basic way is, is just fine. When you, when you mentioned the, um, like the telemetry screen that almost brought me back to like the dark night where they have like the massive room and, and all the TV screens that feels like, right. You got one totally. person, 800 cups of coffee like, littered around the table. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So as we get into ventricular arrhythmias, right. Monomorphic ventricular tachycardia classically shows consistent, regular ventricular complexes, but how do we right? how do we treat this, this specific arrhythmia? Does it vary if they're stable or unstable? Asking just because we know, you mentioned the, the arrhythmia that scares us all is V-fib. And if you're in VTAC, right, that's a little bit away. So how do we manage this? Yeah, so obviously the first thing is whether the patient's stable or unstable. Are they obtunded and coming in on a, on a gurney and, and uh, blood pressure's low and their mentation is, is terrible? You know, that's obviously unstable VT and, and most VTAC is unstable. Um, but by the way, you'll never see a, a little P, you know, you see like little P VT, like pulseless VTAC and then VFib. You never see a little P next to VFib, like pulseless VFib. Yeah. It's all VTIB is pulseless. But, um, you know, so obviously electrical cardioversion is like, you know, something you do, especially if they're unstable. But patients with VTAC can be stable. The most common time that you, that you see this is, or the most often that you see stable VTAC is if someone that has an ICD uh, that has a extensive cardiac history with multiple MIs and they have like a pacemaker or they have a ICD and, and it's a slower VTAC, maybe their ICD is not detecting itself and, and they're usually pretty stable um, and you have some time. Um, and, and, and they might already be on amiodarone at home. And then they might be on something like mixilatine too. These are not very, uh, you don't see these patients very frequently unless you work in like a, a, a patient a center with a lot of heart failure and, and cards patients. But, um, you have, usually have a little more time and have to start reaching for drugs that are not amiodarone or not mixilatine class one B and you might use procainamide or, or add on lidocaine, but, um, Anyway, uh, various ways you can treat it. I don't know if Kyle, you know, sees a lot of VT or, or, or has, has thoughts on this also. Yeah, I think the biggest question that I have my learners ask is, you know, you go through that, that interpretation of fast, slow, regular, irregular, narrow, wide. And then the next question is stable, unstable. And so with all of these things, it's, it's, you know, how does the patient look? Do they have an LLS score of one? If so, um, the answer is most of the time electricity. Um, if they're stable, then we have time to, to think through the patient, look at their history, look at what meds are on, and, and put a little bit of a, a plan together. Um, but I think that's a really important question that, you know, should be in the back of our mind early on um, to manage these patients. So our most common polymorphic ventricular arrhythmias, right, torsades. So what is, what's the unique pharmacotherapy treatment for this specific arrhythmia? Textbook, textbook pharmacotherapy for torsades is magnesium. And um, that's one of the kind of easy 
that's the answer for that question, you know, on, on, on board exams yeah. and on uh, ACLS, you know, uh, certification tests and stuff. Um, but I don't know, we briefly pointed out in the article and we like to say, you know, evidence behind it is it, there's really no evidence that magnesium treats torsades, but technically the only evidence out there is that it prevents its recurrence. Well, we all know that magnesium doesn't have a lot of downsides to it. And we can probably, if they are in torsades, maybe we're not going to terminate it with mag, but we'll prevent the next initiation of torsades. So it, it's, it's something that's, it's what we give. Absolutely. How do we how do we administer it specifically? Are we uh, giving this at a gram an hour for our repletion, or how? What's the what's the specific kind of um, administration of magnesium here? Yeah, so the the dose is what two two grams. Um, really, this is the one time we give. I um, you know, there's a few times we give magnesium fast in the ED, and this is certainly one of them. Given two two grams either over, you know, something like 10 minutes if we're a little worried about their blood pressure or as a, or as a, uh, an IV push. And you say a little bit about, about their blood pressure because obviously the, the biggest adverse effect is hypotension with that. And so, you know, some, some people have the magnesium vials stocked in their code cart. I know that's what we do. I know other places will just grab a bag from the Pixis and literally, you know, pop it on a pressure bag or put it 999 on the pump um, and try to do it. But the ultimate thing here is, right, we're giving it fast. We're not repleting. We're trying to give it um, ASAP here. Is there... You know, you mentioned, I didn't know that, to be completely honest with you, the the pearl about magnesium. So... Knowing what you said that there, it's not actually been shown to terminate it. Are there, is there any other additional pharmacotherapy or things that we should be doing? Or is it really magnesium monotherapy as treatment? If, if a patient's in torsades and they, they come back out of torsades and you're like, oh yeah, well, there's the long QT and that's why they went into torsades. And so why torsades happens um, with QT prolongation is, is sort of theoretical, but it, it, certainly is related to a rhythm uh, or like an ectopic beat, like a, a preventricular contraction happening and falling on like the repolarization period. And, and the longer we have that QT, that's the longer our repolarization or the, the vulnerable time frame on a, in the, in the QRST um, phase. That's the vulnerable part uh, where the, where the heart may go into uh, torsades. And so, we want to, and, and so kind of gets a little complex again and theoretical, but the more, uh, when our heart is, is beating slower, like, like we're more bradycardic, then our ventr- our ventricular autonomic or uh, automaticity wants to, wants to sort of make itself known every once in a while. So when someone's profoundly bradycardic, they will tend to have more PVCs um, because their ventricles like not getting any messages and it goes, well, I guess we'll do our automaticity thing here and, and create a beat. So PVCs are more frequent when the ventricle is, hasn't had a message in a long time. But you put that on top of long QT and you, you create sort of a, a opportunity for, for torsades to happen. And so point here is we want to probably keep that patient at a little higher of a heart rate. And one of the best ways we can do that without not bothering anything else or blood pressure or anything is by using just a pure um, beta agonist, uh, like like or beta one agonist, like isoproteranol. 
And I, I think we throw this term in the article, but it's one of my favorite, like, look at me, I'm smart terms, <laughs> is dromotropy. And it, it provides a dromotropic effect, right? We got inotropy, chronotropy, and then dromotropy. So you can, you can look smart in your, in your shot by saying, uh, well, I want to add some isopaternal to increase the dromotropy. And that's just the rate of, rate of um, the velocity of, of phase zero or the rate of conduction. Thanks for explaining it because I would have dropped that pearl and someone would have been like, oh, what's that? And I would have been like, uh, I think I'm getting a phone call. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> so then kind of closing out here, right, talking about our pulseless ventricular arrhythmias. And that's been a hot topic on the pod. Everyone knows my thoughts. I want to get your all's thoughts. So Lance and Kyle, what is your all's personal favorite antiarrhythmic drug for pulseless VTAC or VFib? Yeah, I'm an algorithm guy. I, I have to say, as much as we dog on amiodarone, and I, I like, I dislike amiodarone as much as Kyle does, but it's it's on our algorithm. I know that I know that lidocaine is too, but I tend to just kind of go with amiodarone. I thought we were friends. <laughs> <laughs> There's, yeah, it, it. I mean, it probably doesn't matter. Is is the real answer? Yeah. Um, have have you guys seen that the new paper that uh, just came out looking at in hospital cardiac arrest and comparing lidocaine to amiodarone and yeah. interestingly lidocaine seemed to look a little bit better in terms of survival favorable neurologic survival etc. Um, so I'll I'll continue with my um, amiodarone rant and I'm gonna I'm gonna go with lidocaine. So. What's your all's experience specifically with using esmolol for refractory ventricular arrhythmias? Because when you look into the literature, right, that's something that you'll see a lot of discussion on. Like, oh, you have refractory, consider this. So what's your all's like hands-on experience when you've used esmolol in these scenarios? I'm about 0 for 10 using esmolol. Sometimes I'll see a rhythm change, and maybe that's what we're wanting. Maybe we're wanting to, to... fix that catecholamine surge um, that, that, that is theorized to be happening in, in refractory. But uh, I, I'm 0 for 10 with using Esmol. I think it's something you may consider, um, but that's it. it. It's something exciting and there's, there's you know, makes sense, you know, and so we kind of jump forward. I always kind of make, I think the most important things before using Esmol for refractory visa is make sure it's refractory visa. And, 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 and what, how is that defined? It's, it's defined by, uh, you know, three rounds of epi, in other words, three rounds of ACLS, um, and, and 450 milligrams of amiodarone and three defibrillations. You know, you, you've gone down your V-fib path and it's happened. V-fib continues to happen and it's refractory. And it's not like, oh, you've given the patient 10 epis, you're 30 minutes into the code, and uh, now they're in V-fib and they've been in V-fib for a few cycles. It's really not for that. That's when you just should stop the epi, you know, um, and uh, stop giving epi um, because that's probably what's causing that. So that's that's my two cents on it. I, I'm not a huge fan of it. Like, yeah, sure, we can try it, but yeah, I mean, mechanistically, it makes sense, right? Um, unfortunately, I, I think I'm probably over five on it. So it, it kind of sucks that I haven't seen the the benefit that a lot of these case series or case reports have have demonstrated. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something I'll keep in my back pocket, uh, to consider, but not something that, you know, I'm going to have already drawn up as this 
every code patient is rolling into the, the ED. Yeah, and just to yeah, kind of double back on that, the the two trials that that showed that it's funny they did. There's two trials I knew of, and then someone did a meta-analysis, systematic review of those two trials, and we're like, yeah, maybe it works, but it it's pretty profound. It it's very compelling those two studies, and I think that's what get kind of gets gets the fan club behind Esmolol, uh, A, because it's exciting and it's a cool thing we can do and it theoretically sounds good. But those two, ret- they were retrospective studies, but they were they were compelling. That survival benefit, you know, uh, and, and Rosk, actually, I, I don't know if I can say the survival benefit. It certainly had a very significant, uh, that's another, I shouldn't say very significant, but there was, it was significant, um, uh, you know, rates of Rosk. And those, those two studies were something else, so... Almost very significant. <laughs> Almost <laughs> very, very. But ACLS guidelines, I think, say it perfectly in their 2020 update after those those studies have come out and said, you know, there is not sufficient data to recommend SMLL for refractory defects. They're not saying you should. They're not saying you should. And there's just insufficient data to make a recommendation on it. And I think that's where we should stand. Let's close out with uh, kind of talking about probably the the underloved arrhythmia, our Brady arrhythmias, and when 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 patients come in in a Brady arrhythmia, what are indications for when we should jump to acute treatment versus where we can kind of more monitor and watch and wait and and see what their vitals do naturally? Yeah, again, again, I think it goes back to, you know, stable, unstable, whether their blood pressure is low or not. But my favorite patients that have ever come in are these, like, 75-year-old men that complain of, like, leg pain. And then you hook them up to the monitor in, in a back room, and their their heart rate's 30. <laughs> and they're they're on propranolol, you know, for tremors. And, uh, and their leg probably hurts because they're not getting any perfusion to it because their heart rate's 30. But, um, you know, I always say the AV node is the most important part of the heart and, and, and the heart blocks, it's kind of a, a parlor trick to, to be able to identify a Mobitz one winky buck and a Mobitz two, but I wouldn't get caught up. I always tell learners, don't get caught up in that first degree heart blocks, just a little bit of a, a prolonged PR interval, which is where the AV node doing, is doing its job. Then, then second degree is a little worse. Third degree is worse, you know? So um, you know, and, 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 and at the end of the day, it's supportive care and, and, you know, yeah, you can give some meds, um, but, um, really supportive care and, and, and hooking them up to a, a pacer, um, a transcutaneous pacer or, or trying out some atropine. Hey, you mentioned atropine is atropine kind of the, the universal first line treatment for everybody with Brady arrhythmias. I think it's hard to go wrong with atropine. I will say you, if you get deep into the, the literature, you'll find some things about atropine causing paradoxical decrease in heart rate and paradoxical bradycardia. And it gets really, uh, the, the mechanisms get, get kind of intense. I don't want to go into it, but the, uh, um, it, it, it's, there are some people that will say, no, let's not give atropine because the patient could get worse. And I, I would only, you know, ask, ask your, cardiology colleagues you know about that they can explain the the theory to you so when when do we like when are we going to the to the pixis or omnicell for atropine versus when are we going straight for a vasopressor infusion and when do we just say nope we're skipping the atropine i'm gonna go i'm gonna go straight for our catecholamines 
Yeah, these these are patients that look very very sick when they come in, um, and oftentimes I kind of describe it as like you know trying to shovel water out of the, the sinking Titanic with a bucket, um, because really the problem is kind of in the the AV node, whereas a lot of these agents are working to increase the synthetic catecholamines that are hitting on the the SA node and just make the atria go faster, but if the the problem is in the AV node, it's downstream. Um, then even jumping depressors oftentimes won't work for some of these higher degree AV node blocks. So I think if someone's coming in really hypotensive, looking um, in shock, it's it's not a bad idea to have it at the bedside. But again, these are the patients that are going to require uh, transcutaneous pacing or, or going to the cath lab and getting a, a pacemaker put in. Yeah, great point. I'll just say real quick, you know, with any of the meds we're using for, for the higher degree AV blocks and the more severe ones that are symptomatic, um, we're really temporizing the patient because rarely are we going to really pull them out of an AV uh, block. Um, they're, they're, they need a pacemaker and, and we're really temporizing them with medications um, to, to go up to the, the cath lab and get an intervention. Lance, by the way, I meant to I meant to say when you when you mentioned the classic patient who's coming in with leg pain, that's also the guy when you ask if he has any medical history, he says no. Then you follow up with when did you see a doctor last? And it was like nineteen seventies. It's the same those are that's yeah. an overlapping Venn diagram. <laughs> right. And 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 he, there's a glitch in his pharmacy somewhere where he's still getting his propranolol <laughs> refilled. Absolutely. So um, where does, where is isoprel or isoproteranols place in therapy land as we're thinking about our like bradyarrhythmia algorithm? Yeah, it, 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 like I mentioned earlier, you know, works directly on, on beta one receptors and it's kind of a sort of a clean, it's supposed to not have a lot of, uh, uh, you know, effects on blood pressure one way or another. So it's pretty clean, uh, dromotropic, uh, drug. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, adding it, um, to increase someone's heart rate is something that you may get a recommendation for. A lot of people won't, won't think about it. It's not a really common drug, but it's something that you may get a recommendation for from cardiology, um, to help, you know, uh, uh, titrate up their, their heart rate a little bit, uh, again, as a temporizing measure. Well, we've, we've, we've been highlighting and kind of using your all's amazing two-part, uh, article series in AHHP kind of as our backbone, the pathophysiology and treatment of adults with arrhythmias in the emergency department. And we've, I've heard you multiple times say we couldn't cover it in the paper. So this is going to be a tall task of trying to summarize and give us just a couple take home points when we're thinking about the, the overall treatment and like management of arrhythmias in the, in the ED. But if you, if you had to try to simplify it for us and, and break down just to a couple things, Things. What are what are some key points to remember? I'll I'll say you know when, when we try to, we put those diagrams in the article because it really starts with you know those physiology nor understanding how the how the heart kind of conducts normally and, and understanding the pathophysiology and and what's wrong with the heart and and it requires kind of a visual you know or maybe anatomical understanding of what's happening in the heart. So I think kind of getting that down, especially for most of us, I bet are those folks that we, those, those types that don't like to just memorize something to memorize it. Maybe we did that for a while in pharmacy school, but now's the time to really start having a, a appreciating an understanding for, for the, the pathophys behind the arrhythmias. And I think doing that 
can 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 take you a long way in this game. Um, so that that's kind of my 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 general take home. Yeah, it's, it can be an intimidating subject. I think trying to simplify it as best you can, um, you know, breaking it down in, into fast or slow, narrow or wide, regular or irregular, um, and using that framework to to guide your approach is was super helpful for me. Um, yeah, and then and I think a couple other key points just to wrap it up would be to always think about if there's something else underlying to that's driving this arrhythmia and, and you know, make sure that you're treating that appropriately. Um, and then think about if they're stable or unstable. Obviously, if they're unstable, you have less time to, to intervene and those are the patients that might need a, a emergent cardioversion. Yeah, well stated. Well, you all did an, an awesome job, and I know this is going to be a must-download. This is going to be in the files with the the pharmacist considerations and RSI and things like that. So this is certainly going to be a paper that helps out tons and tons of people. Thanks for both of you coming on, letting letting me talk to you both, highlight this. Um, let them let Lance Kyle know how uh, awesome their paper is, how great they were here at L Ray RX at Emerge Farm uh, for Kyle. But I appreciate you both. Thanks so much, guys. Hey, Nick, Nick, Nick thanks for having us on. It's uh, great. We, we love talking about arrhythmias. Thanks for letting us highlight this article. And it's great to talk to you. Thanks, Nick. Uh, thanks again to uh, Kyle and Lance. What a what an awesome uh, episode. Remember, reach out to them at LRayRx and at Emerge Farm, P-H-A-R-M. Uh, let them know what an awesome job they did. Uh, reach out to me. Let me know what you think. At Pharmacy to Dose, T-O to Dose. Uh, we're on all the things, right? Twitter, X, Instagram, uh, TikTok, Blue Sky, Mastodon, whatever your current vibe of the moment is right in terms of social medias you can find all the fun things there including trial the day videos um highlights uh, clips from shows and things so lots and lots of uh, fun stuff there uh reach out to me pharmacy to dose at gmail.com and then of course the reference list with the articles we discussed today um some of the things that that they talked about throughout the episode is going to be in that podcast episode description as well as at pharmacytodose.com, the website. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash APPS. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the critical care PRN.
ACP and the critical care peer end disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.